0: So for the past five weeks, we've been talking in this series, what he gave us. This is talking, Jesus accomplishes his mission. He ascends into heaven and he leaves us with these gifts. And for the past five weeks, uh, we've talked about some of them. And so far we've discussed purpose, power, presence, and prayer. And today I'm going to spoil the whole alliteration thing. And today's the Word. Um, He gave us the word. And so the word, one of the ways that we typically see the word is that it's, oh, it's a nice source of wisdom. It's it's got good morals. It's got good ethics or maybe good philosophy. But what I want you to leave here today with maybe a, a different perspective, the word has a supernatural power in it. It's not an ordinary book, like you open a book and you read it and you go, yeah, I agree with this and this is really beautiful and that's wise. And so in my mind, I'm making a decision that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with this, but maybe not that. No, the Bible's claims about itself is that it comes into you, dwells in you and begins to change you. It has a power to it that all too often we and the church overlook and we treat it like an ancient book of wisdom. You know, in 300, before the church was kind of officially accepted by Rome, the church was often persecuted. People were put to death for their faith. And the Roman emperors, one after the next, it seemed like, were trying to stamp it out to get rid of this Christianity. And about 300 AD, one of the more wicked Roman emperors came to power. His name was Diocletian. And he had a brilliant idea because he understood, a brilliant and wicked idea, because he understood the power of where Christianity lies. All the other emperors had gathered up the Christians and put them to death. And and the watching world would go, my goodness, these people are willing to give their lives, their health, their possessions. They were willing to lay it all down because Jesus was more precious to them than anything that Rome could take. And the watching world is looking at this going, Oh, I want what those people have. And Diocletian comes along and he issues an edict that says Wherever you find a house of worship that brings about Christian community, burn it to the ground. And wherever you find the Holy Scriptures, I want them burnt. These people believe that the Scriptures are the source of their power. Burn them. And so Roman soldiers all over the Mediterranean world went into churches and said, I demand that you give me the scriptures. And Eusebius, who's a famous historian, writes of these unbelievable, heroic acts of these pastors and bishops that were tortured in unbelievable ways, but they would not give up the scriptures because it was too precious far too precious the power of God was in those scriptures and we can look back at the world and I mean we know this from history we know that the Bible has generated more good things in the last 2,000 years than any work of man it's generated I, I just made a list and this isn't exhaustive but the Bible the impact of the Bible it's generated more charities more universities more hospitals paintings sculptures music literature education theater, human rights, legal codes, generosity, philosophy, life transformations, recovery from addictions, family health, sources of community, rich community, and the list goes on and on and on. And we can look at the last 2000 years and whether you're a believer or not, you should look and go, Oh, thank God for the scriptures. Look at how they have transformed our world. but we have a different attitude in modern days. The average American looks at the Bible as this archaic book that that doesn't have any source that's beneficial to me in my life. The American Bible Society did studies and they found that half of all Americans are disengaged from the Bible. And when I say disengaged, what I mean is they read the Bible twice or less in the course of an entire year. When given four options of what are considered daily necessities, the Bible finished last place behind coffee, sweets, and social media. 79% of Americans claim that the Bible is a sacred book. It's the best-selling book of all time, and that's not even close. 5.9 billion copies sold. Not even close. The average American home has four Bibles and their homes. Two-thirds of Americans wish that they could read and understand their Bibles more than they do. And here's the I think the most stunning of all the research they found. This is Pew research. Did a study among Christians, and they asked them, Is the Bible essential for your faith? Fifty-eight percent of self-identified Christians said no. We live in a world where we kind of create our own God. God has given his word. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And we go, ah, that's not essential. I've got an idea of who God is. And we create God according to our image. And in doing so, we pass by something far, far, far more glorious. Any time that you, in history, any time that you've seen The Spirit of God moves mightily to change culture, to change people, to bring light to dark places. Do you know what is always there? This deep reverence and hunger for the Word of God, this acknowledgement that the Word of God carries its own power, that the Spirit moves when we have the Word deeply implanted in us. You can look at America and you can see that the church is not all that relevant here. Why? Because we don't see the Bible as being all that powerful. We don't see the spirit moving. We don't plant it into our hearts and trust in it with everything we've got. But in places where revival is just hitting hard, they treasure the word of God. In China, in the last century, more than 100 million people have come to Christ. It's growing leaps and bounds. Why? Let me show you a picture of one home church where a missionary shows up to deliver Bibles to them. Look at how they appreciate it. It's convicting. I've got a Bible within my reach everywhere I go. It's on my phone. I've got multitudes in my house, in my office. It's everywhere. But do I see the Bible as holding the power of God like that? To where just having it yields such gratitude in me that it drives me to tears to be able to have this picture of who Christ is and how beautiful he is. You know, the, the Bible is to- it absolutely is wisdom for living. It gives you morals. It gives you ethics. It gives you philosophy. Yes, it's definitely not less than that. And it shows you the beauty of Christ and who your father is and your savior is and your bridegroom. And you see his character all throughout. It shows you his love, his mercy, his holiness, his wrath, his justice, his nature. This is where we come to know our God. As St. Augustine put it, the holy scriptures are our letters from home. It's where we get to see the heart of our father, the one whom we will spend eternity with. But I want to tell you the Bible is not something that God gives to us so that we can put on in all of our intellectual arrogance and stand over it and say, let me see what I can find. I agree with this. This is beautiful. This is good. This is good. And then you take that wisdom and say, okay, now I'm going to walk out in my own strength and do this stuff. You know, the way that scriptures describe the Bible is that it moves in you. It is the power that changes you. It's the one that acts. You don't look over it and study it. No, it studies you. Hebrews tells us this, that for the word of God, hear this, this is a bold statement. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's bold. Who's who's the one acting here? The spirit, the word of God is living. It pierces. It discerns. Not you. The way that the, the scriptures present themselves is this bold claim that that by faith you grab hold of it, but it is the one that empowers change in you. It works in you. It is the power of God. Do we believe that? The scriptures claim to have the supernatural power to change you. And here's the deal. I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years. When I first came to faith, I knew nothing about the Bible. I could probably tell you who Noah was, maybe Moses. I knew that Jesus died on a cross and Adam and Eve, and that's about it. And God has implanted this word, and I'm still a mess, (laughs) a big mess. Ask my wife. But I'll tell you, in 20 years, I have seen the power of the word at work in me. If you talk to people that have saturated their souls in, in the word of God, they'll tell you it changes you. On the night of his arrest, Jesus is offering up this prayer. He's talking to his father and he's looking forward to what he wants for us. How does he want us to move forward once he's ascended into heaven, when he leaves us? And this is his prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify literally means set them apart Make them light that shines in contrast to the darkness. Make them a different sort of people from the average person in this world. And how does he say that that's going to happen? Well, he sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it is the power of the word that sets us apart. It makes us different. And how does that happen? It's not by your opinion. It's not by your good works. It's not by clever sermons or teachings. It is when the word takes root in you that it begins to change you by the power of the Spirit. And this is, not a, non, this is a non-negotiable for Jesus. And John 8, listen to what Jesus says. If, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Who's doing the acting here? Where does the verbs belong? If you abide, what does that word mean? That means to live, to take up residency. Not just, hey, if you check it out every once in a while. Man, if you are saturated if you abide if you take up residency in my word then you are truly my disciples and what does that word do it exposes you to the truth you get to know the truth of of the world of your own nature of jesus of salvation of of hope all of it and when you know that truth the word will set you free Truly, I truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so here Jesus comes and he's saying, if you implant my word deep in your heart, you have salvation. You have freedom. It will set you free. And you see this expression, the truth will set you free. Notice the context. We, we live in a culture where people say, my truth, that drives me crazy, there's no my truth and your truth. There's the truth and the truth. When it's understood with the gospel will set you free. And what does that look like? How does how does the scripture, how does this Bible set me free, set you free from bondage? if you understand it, if the Spirit takes it and animates it in your heart because you've taken it in, it will free you from bondage. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Recently, Laura and I, my wife, read a book by Robert Louis Stevenson that most people are aware of. It's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. How many of you have heard of that, read that, seen the cartoon or whatever? So it's a really fascinating story that I think everybody in here can relate to. And I just So it starts with Dr. Jekyll. And Dr. Jekyll desperately wants the affections and the respect of people, right? But he's got this appetite, this passion that wants to sin. Why? Because sin is fun. Let's be honest. Sin is fun for a season. But he knows that when he does this, he can never really enjoy the sin. He can never jump into the mud pit and go, ah, yes, this is great, and, and feed all of his appetites and his addictions and rage and anger and everything else. He can't enjoy it. Why? Because before he makes the potion, every time he does that, there's something in him that's going, you're worthless. Look at you. You're disgusting. And so the alternative to that, you know, you can't enjoy Mr. Hyde because you've got a conscience. And so here's Dr. Jekyll over here, and Dr. Jekyll doesn't enjoy life. Why? Because everything in Dr. Jekyll wants to feed these sinful passions over there. And so it's just slavery. He, he has to go around saying, well, I can't do what I want to do. So I'll just be a slave to my conscience and I'll just have to keep choosing the right thing and I never get to enjoy things. Do you relate to that? Like right now, there are a bunch of hides and jekylls in this room that where you're, you're, you lean most strongly. So the Mr. Hides are in this room going, shut up, fat boy. <laughs> I don't want to hear this. You're making, I don't, want to, I don't want to know this. I want to just keep living my life. I want to keep pressing on. Stop trying to provoke my conscience. I'm happy where I am. I like my sin. Leave me alone. And the Jekylls are in here going, oh, he's right. I'm so bad. I don't read the scriptures. I should. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm just, this is no good. I'm bad. And the gospel comes and tears it all down. This was one of the biggest surprises of my Christian life. As I grew in the word, as I started to, to know Jesus and to see his beauty and to just appreciate my salvation and all that he's done for me and all the beauty that he is, you know what started to happen over here to hide in me? The things I thought, man, I don't want to become a Christian because I'll have to give up all my pleasures and passions. And slowly but surely, the word in me, animated by the spirit, began to change My passions. He became precious. He became my passion. You guys became my passion. And all of a sudden, the things that this guy is demanding in me, keep feeding that addiction, Sam. Keep chasing after those things you know you're not supposed to have. They're they're not as attractive because he's become more beautiful. And now I get to chase my passions That God has made beautiful. And so we're told to put to death Mr. Hyde. Right? No problem. As he begins to lose power in our lives. But here's just as good a news. The scriptures tell us to put Dr. Jekyll to death too. You go through life and you're sitting around and you're going... such a mess. I'm so not worthy of God. I look at, look at how much of a, a, a defiled I am. Look at how I fail. Look at how I don't read the scriptures. Look at this and that and the other and shame, shame, shame. And the gospel comes and says, I'm going to change your desire so you can get rid of Mr. Hyde, but I'm going to come over here and I'm going to let you know that you are absolutely secure in the love of Christ to where there's nothing that can separate us. Nothing. And so this, this impulse in you that thinks that you just have to strive and slave to get my favor, it's done. You have my favor because Jesus went to the cross, died for you, clothed you in his perfections. It's not about you anymore. And so we walk in the freedom of this gospel at work in us, putting Hyde to death because he's no longer our central passion. And we put De- Jekyll to death. Because he can't condemn us anymore. And now we walk by this new life in the spirit. Oh, the freedom from bondage that the scriptures offer. If we'll just take them and feast on them. But it doesn't stop there. See, the beauty of this church, the reason why we gather is to fill up and then go out. And then we, with our newfound freedom, go out and free others. One of the best at that, one of my favorite evangelists in the history of the church was a guy named George Whitefield, who during the Great Awakening in the 1700s lit our nation up. They estimate that even before TV and radio and podcasts and internet and all that stuff, he preached before 10 million people. During his ministry, just going nonstop, village to village to village to village, declaring the gospel. And everybody was like, This guy's unbelievable. We have churches everywhere, but nobody sets them up ablaze like this guy and Jonathan Edwards and a couple others. Why did the nation catch fire at their preaching? Because they had something that the churches back then didn't. The rest of the churches were pointing to piety and being good and doing the right thing. And they came along and said, You're dead. You are absolutely dead in your sins and trespasses. You need the power of God at work in you to change you. Otherwise, you're just going to be enslaved to Jekyll and Hyde your whole life. You need a supernatural act. And you know what? When people said, that's right, and they grabbed hold of the scriptures and Christ and the spirit, boom, the world was set ablaze. And this is what he says. This is what he attributes to his power. He says, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat indeed. Hear that. It satisfied me. I didn't need hide anymore. It satisfied. It was my meat indeed and my drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light, light, And power, hear that, power comes in the word. Power from above. And I want to show you, this didn't just start in the New Testament. God has been singing this message that if you want his power, his spirit, his glory to move in your life, it begins with the word of God. It always moves when the word comes forth. You go back to creation. Genesis 1, right? God is on a mission. He wants to dwell with his people. He creates to be in relationship with us. And so it starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Empty, purposeless, dark. That's how creation starts. And you go, wait a minute. I thought it began perfect. No. Why would God do it this way? because he wants to show us something this is our life empty formless void dark before christ and what do you see there the spirit of god is just hovering waiting what triggers it and the and god said and his word comes forth and boom Light, beauty, brilliance, the world begins to change. Everything becomes, that's that's our story. The word is spoken, the spirit moves, and we become children of light. But we messed it up, right? God came to dwell with us. He made a beautiful world, but we messed it up. We spat in his face. We rebelled, and still God wanted to be with us. But now he couldn't be directly with us. He had to come in temples and tabernacles, veiled behind curtains and walls. But he still wanted to be with us. And so after the Israelites come out of Egypt, God comes to Moses and says, Oh man, I want to dwell with my people. But I can't dwell directly with them. They're sinful and a mess. And so here's the instructions that he gives to Moses in the book of Exodus. It said, The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect a tabernacle. Tabernacle is a a tent where God would dwell and his people would be around him, but there's a barrier and you shall put in it. And I want you to hear this. You you shall put in it the ark of the the covenant, the testimony, the promise of God, right? The ark which held the 10 commandments, the word of God, you put it in the tabernacle and then pay attention here. Moses finished the work And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I want you to notice a pattern that you're going to see again and again and again and again and again. again. God finishes the work. He builds the tabernacle or the temple perfectly according to his design, according to every instruction. Everything is perfect. And then he plants the word inside. And what happens? Boom. Glory falls on it. So you fast forward, there's an artist's rendering of the tabernacle surrounded by his people with the glory falling on it. You fast forward almost 500 years and Solomon comes along and he says, you know what, no tabernacle anymore. Let's build this wonderful temple, a stone structure in Jerusalem where you will dwell. But you're still behind walls, still separated. And it says, thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was, what's the word? finished just according to god's design and then the priest brought the ark of the covenant what's inside that the word of god into the into the house of the lord and placed it in the inner sanctuary of the house and there was nothing in the ark besides the two tablets of stone that moses put there at horeb where the lord made a covenant with the people of israel and so if you know the pattern what's coming okay the work is finished perfectly according to god's design and the word is implanted what do you know is coming And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory and God's spirit moves mightily when the word is implanted. And so then you get to the New Testament. And guys, don't miss the brilliance and how profound this is. Because God is on a mission to dwell with his people. He wants intimacy with us. And so at the nativity, we see something that the Old Testament hadn't seen since the garden. God is going to come without walls, without curtains. But how does he come? John 1 tells us this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt in that literal word. And the Greek means tabernacled. It's like saying Jesus came in a tent of flesh, just like the tabernacle and the word. He is the word is covered up with this tent of flesh. He is a picture of the tabernacle and no surprise. He's perfect. He doesn't just meet the design of God. He is God perfect in every way. And so that's complete. And the words inside, and what does John say? He's totally picking up on this pattern. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And you think, okay, Sam, that's wonderful. Great, we have temples and shrines and tabernacles, and Jesus was our true temple. That's great. Here's what's amazing. Jesus came into this world not just to be the true temple. Jesus came into this world to be the sacrifice that would transform you into the true temple. Whew. What? It's a stunning thought. But you say to yourself, I can't be a temple. I'm, I'm a mess. Totally defiled. Like you should have seen what I've done just in this past week alone. I've got all this shame, all this guilt, all this history. I'm a mess. Jesus comes on a mission to transform you from the mess, from the defiled, to make you utterly righteous. He goes to the cross. And what's the great exchange of the cross? He takes all your defilement, all of your sin, all your shame, all your mess to himself, and he pays for it. It's gone forever. And what else does he do? He takes his perfection, his perfect righteousness, and he clothes you in it. And from the cross, what are his words, his last words? It is finished. You have been remade according to the perfect design of God. You are now ready and perfectly willing, capable, and worthy to become the dwelling place of God Himself. He's on this mission for intimacy. Just walking into the world as a human wasn't good enough. That's intimate, not enough. He wants to dwell in you. And so the work is finished. What's the next step? The word has to be implanted inside you. And so what happens? He's raised from the dead and he spends 40 days with his disciples. And what is he doing during all that time? He's opening their eyes to understand the scriptures that they haven't before this moment understood. He's going around all throughout his ministry saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be dead for three days and risen. And they're all going, okay. And they don't get it. And so when you get to the end of the gospel of Luke, what does it say? Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, your entire Bible is about him. The Bible is the cradle in which Christ is laid. Everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And hear this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, if you know the pattern that the whole Old Testament has been getting after... The work is finished, the word's implanted, what should come next? And the gospel of Luke ends, and you're waiting for the second edition, which is the book of Acts. Luke is going to write the book of Acts. You don't need to get it to know what happened. Jesus promises them at the end of the gospel of Luke, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why? Because the work is finished, the word's been implanted, be ready because the spirit is going to move in power. And you get to Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, no big surprise here. They're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm saying. I'm like, We as a people of God need to recapture this understanding that it's not just an old sacred archaic book of wisdom. It is the means by which the spirit, power, and glory of God lights us up, rescues us from our bondage, makes us different, sets us apart. All these are claims that are made of the scriptures by God himself. It is what sanctifies us. And so it's no big surprise that when you get to the New Testament, you repeatedly hear things like this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? The ultimate intimacy God has achieved. He's made you perfect. Now it's By faith, we implant the word in us so that the spirit and power of God can move mightily in us. And this is not a sermon that you should leave saying, I just, I don't read my Bible enough. This is a sermon that I hope you leave here going, oh my goodness, there's so much power and glory and beauty that's offered to me in the word. I can't wait. It's beautiful. Feast. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. (laughs) I thank you for the spirit that animates the word and brings it to life. I thank you that you have made us temples so that you can dwell with us and give us an intimacy that we can't even fully understand, that you would care enough about us, that you would want to dwell in us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire, a hunger for the word of God and that by it you would free us from bondage and that you would make us people that are eager to free others. Lord, move mightily. Light up your temples. Show your glory to this watching world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.